Previously on Transformers University, we took a look back at all the historical elements of 1984 that made the Transformers as a brand successful and set the stage for the Transformers cartoon to be a success in the United States. And we met the cast and explored their roles both before and after the Transformers series. And now we take a look ahead to the first five episodes of the original cartoon here on Transformers University. Hello, my friend, and welcome back to Transformers University. This is Episode 5, and I am your host, Anthony Brutali, and this show is brought to you by TFU.info, the Alpha Trion and Omega Prime of Transforming Toys. <laughs> Maybe you remember that as our old tagline. Um, and this episode, we are going to delve into the original G1 cartoon. And before I get into that, I do want to reiterate one thing. Uh, something I had with a conversation uh, with a friend of mine earlier this week, uh, talking about preparing for this show, and uh, he was gonna—he asked if I was gonna get into the character model differences and and some of the real deep minutia of the G1 cartoon. And I just want to reiterate: this show's purpose um, isn't meant to be uh, an all-encompassing every single detail education of the Transformers brand. We'll get into almost everything, I think. I mean, there'll I have ways, I think, of uh, bringing us back to things, too. But right now, I really want to delve into the things that we love as fans and why we love them, or the things that we hate as fans and why we hate them, or why we love that they're so bad. So those are the things uh, I'm going to focus on uh, particularly when going through uh, the cartoon. I'm not going to delve too deep into episode-by-episode episode plot. There are plenty of other podcasts that do that, including one that you'll hear from later in the show that does a great job of going one-by-one one through the show. So let's talk about the theme song and the introduction to the G1 cartoon, uh, the Transformers, as it was called before there was a way to call it G1. So on that show, the theme song changed every season. So season one, season two, season three all had different theme songs. And so let's focus right now on the first theme song. So that theme was composed by Anne Bryant and Ford Kinder, who did a lot of the Hasbro and Sunbow TV theme songs back in the 80s. And it's something interesting to note. So that song was composed probably in late 83, early 84. And uh, I was driving my car uh, maybe just a few weeks ago and had my iPod on. Yes, I still use an iPod. And I uh, had it on random. And this, this cover version of this song from the 70s came up and... The melody for the intro just sounded so familiar. And I'm going to play a little clip of it because I'm pretty sure this is where the inspiration for the song came from. Now, I am 
not saying that this is. I don't have any sort of factual proof beyond that it sounds close enough to my ear to think that maybe Anne Bryant or Ford Kinder were a fan of the band Ides of March and the song Vehicle. Alright, I know, I know. You're saying, Ant, you're crazy. They sound nothing alike. Not to me, at least. So, you know what? I'm going to play the melody of the Transformers track from the interstitials in the episode uh, right next to the beginning of Vehicle. And then we're going to play around a little bit with uh, the timing because I think there's just a couple of notes or rhythms or intervals switched around. And uh, just give this all a listen and draw your own conclusions. Okay, but from the theme song, let's talk about the opening sequence of the show. And uh, the show starts first with the sigils, with the Autobot and Decepticon sigils, and that's really important in terms of defining the brand and defining who is good and who is bad. And then we see Prime on top of the symbols, and then Decepticon jets. And they land and they transform, and they're led by Thundercracker, which makes me wonder if... This is somehow tied to the tech spec confusion uh, from the toys where Thundercracker accidentally got Starscream's statistics and that maybe the blue one was supposed to be leading them and the blue one was supposed to be Starscream. Some other uh, interesting things in the opening sequence. There's an emphasis on the volcano where the where we'll get to where they crash. Uh, which, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of ties to real-world events uh, throughout the series and throughout the franchise, and this is uh, not unlike any other. Um, the volcano erupting is uh, tied back to the recent, at the time, uh, eruption of Mount St. Helens. And it's kind of neat that all the Transformers fly up and fly around it when the logo sweeps out. And that's your Season 1 intro. Before we move on to the actual content of the episode, let's talk a bit about the writer of More Than Meets the Eye, Episodes 1, 2, and 3, a gentleman by the name of uh, George Arthur Bloom. Now, uh, Bloom, uh, according to IMDb, wrote for Dean Martin in the late 60s and uh, early 70s and spent a lot of time writing or uh, as a scripting consultant, story consultant, producer, on a number of very well-known 70s sitcoms, such as Alice and Welcome Back, Cotter, Too Close for Comfort, and uh, eventually went on to write a lot of Hasbro properties. Uh, most notably, he wrote a ton of My Little Pony, uh, did an episode of Gem, and then went on to write uh, mainly children's television the rest of his career, even up until 2016, which uh, at the moment is his last credit on a show called Nature Cat, uh, where he wrote two episodes. But his only Transformers work was the first three pilot episodes, The More Than Meets the Eye, Parts 1, 2, and 3. But uh, to take a little look into some of his other works, Bloom also wrote the season three premiere in 1972 of All in the Family, an episode that centered around gun control 
and the Second Amendment. And it's really strange and interesting to see that the arguments from 45 years ago are still the same ones that we hear today. All I know is it's an American and it's my right to pack a rod. Bull! What do you mean? Bull to the Constitution? It doesn't say that in the Constitution. I shall prove it to you. I got a copy of it here in my history book. I will. It's right there in your Second Amendment. Oh, no, Archie. That's the one that says thou shalt not make any graven image. (laughs) That ain't the Constitution either. What you says to get his bag address. You don't know what you're talking about. You just look it up. All I know is my God-given right as an American to have a gun in the house. It is not, Archie. The Supreme Court ruled on that as far back as 1939. What the Supreme Court says ain't got nothing to do with the law. So what George Arthur Bloom did with his writing was set the tone for the entire series and for the entire premise of the show based off of Jim Shooter's original treatment. And he set it forth in the first episode very quickly with the first bit of narration from Vic Caroli. Many millions of years ago, on the planet Cybertron, life existed, but not life as we know it today. Intelligent robots that could think and feel inhabited the cities. They were called Autobots and Decepticons. But the brutal Decepticons were driven by a single goal, total domination. They set out to destroy the peace-loving Autobots, and a war between the forces of good and evil raged across Cybertron. Devastating all in its path, draining the planet's once rich sources of energy. The Autobots, on the verge of extinction, battled valiantly to survive. So in that narration, we get a sense of everything that's important as far as this story goes. In the first sentence, we set up that the Transformers are alive. That they are alive, and then they think, and they feel. And that's huge. That's real big. That they're not just metal machines clashing around. That they are actual alien beings in a war over resources. And again, as I've said before, tying things back to real-world events that have happened uh, recently to this story, not recently to this podcast, but recently to when this story was written, think about there is a war for energy uh, in this story. And this is not too far removed from the uh, gas crisis of the early 80s. And so the notion... Of renewable energy and the notion of of sustained energy production in the United States is actually a very important thing uh, to Americans in the early 80s and it's reflected here in the story and Vic Caroli's narration goes on and it sets up motivations for the Autobots and the Decepticons um, Decepticons want total domination as he said And the Autobots are peace-loving and fighting for their own existence. And with that, we get set up into an entire world in just a handful of sentences. And that is huge. And that is why the G1 series and these particular episodes are so powerful to this day, including having a profound effect on current Transformers lead designer, John Warden. There's something about the early first episodes, um, the narration is really powerful, it's stirring. When you hear that narrator's voice and uh, the balance between the music 
Peter Cullen's voice, narration. There's something, uh, there's an optimism, direct storytelling, um, combined with, honestly, state-of-the-art animation of its time, colorful, great linear storytelling. I could go on and on. So storytelling and animation are what set this show apart from anything else that was on TV at the time in children's programming and in the boys action entertainment uh, brand branding of the time. So with that in mind, uh, let's dive into this episode a little bit. And once again, I'm not going to go beat by beat through the entire story, though in the first couple episodes it might seem like it because there's a lot to unpack uh, in those episodes. But I'm going to touch on a couple of things uh, fairly regularly, and that is one, key storytelling elements uh, that are important to the overall history of the brand and of the Transformers story. Uh, two, things I like to call playable moments. And these are things that I personally remember myself uh, trying to emulate with whatever toys I did have at the time um, or some version thereof. And I think that's very important to the health of the brand and how successful the brand was that uh, children at that time wanted these toys to just reenact some of these scenes. And uh, I think three is the thing that I'm going to talk about. I, I kind of joking around with it in my head as unplayable moments, but it's some of the interesting little pieces that we either never got um, up until now or things that were so part of our fascination with this brand that we eventually got them years or decades later as toys or as part of something else. And uh, those are very important. A lot of those things are set forth in the first three episodes. So just jumping in, one of the things that always stood out to me is that uh, Wheeljack is the first character to speak, and I think we talked about that in uh, the last episode. And uh, I always liked that his he didn't have a mouth, but his ears lit up and blinked according to what he was saying. And they only blinked in one color, but they always blinked with his syllables. And I think that one uh, always sits, just sits with me as an interesting little quirk because he, to me as a kid, as a five or six-year-old at the time, he, if I couldn't remember his name, I knew he was the one with the light-up ears. Um, something we see in the first episode, right off the bat, since the Transformers are not on Earth, they're not Earth vehicles. They can't disguise themselves as Earth Earth vehicles because those vehicles didn't exist yet and so we see Wheeljack and Jazz and Bumblebee and the Tetra Jets uh, and Soundwave and Laserbeak uh, all take on some form of Cybertronian mode in that first episode uh, the only one you can actually do with their toy is Soundwave since he turns into this kind of odd lamppost thing and uh you can actually do it with the original toy by just turning the arms back, flipping back the head, and uh, tilting him forward. Um, so all those creatures, all those characters, I should say, um, had these great Cybertronian modes. And those, we've seen some Cybertronian modes based off of games, video games that have had them in them later on. And even some character models in later shows that are heavily based off of Cybertronian modes from this episode. Um, we've never really gotten official, more than meets the eye styled uh, Cybertronian modes 
the exception maybe of the uh, Seeker Jets as Tetra Jets. Uh, and we only got those with the main three in, as of uh, Skywarp, Thundercracker, and Starscream in the Titanium line in the early, early mid-2000s. Now, another thing we see very often in the cartoon is um, something I'd like to kind of just call superpowers, I guess. But Transformers in the cartoon, uh, unlike their toys, tend to have things that just either come out of compartments or replace their hand. So their hand would slide back and something else would slide in. And this is a uh, trope throughout the series where characters have exactly what they need at any given time because they can slide their hand back and have something new, some sort of tool or weapon uh, that will help rectify the situation. So something else we see early on. Uh, so we start in the first episode with Wheeljack and Bumblebee and they're um, picking up energy rods, energy conductors that are in rod form uh, and they get chased by the Decepticons and uh, some of the Decepticons that stop them uh, eventually get nicknamed the Rainmakers, though not in this episode. Uh, I should say not from this episode, but they're Seekers, Seeker Jets, which is also a fan-created name, so I should say they're Decepticon Jets. Uh, only they're all the wrong colors. One's green, one's yellowish-orange, one is, uh, I believe, is a different shade and combination of blues than Thundercracker. And eventually we got toys of all these guys. So that's how much uh, the Rainmakers and Decepticon Jet model uh, became a part of uh, the Transformers lore and the Transformers brand. And that's throughout the series too because the Decepticons are horribly outnumbered. So to make up for this uh, mismatch in numbering, especially in these early episodes, we get their character models, especially the Decepticon Jets and Reflector and even uh, the Rumble Frenzy character model done up in several different colors as background characters who eventually will just disappear and have never been named. Uh, something else really important and really interesting from this first episode. So we, we get into this part of the show and part of the episode. So Bumblebee and Wheeljack get away. We end up at the Autobot base. The Autobots have a plan. And their plan is to fly out into the universe for ener to find energy. And uh, Decepticons are spying on this, and they find this out, and they're going to follow them. Okay, so that's basically the short part of uh, what happened so far in the episode. And one of the things we see is that Megatron leaves the planet to Shockwave. Now, Shockwave does not have a toy yet, but they had plans to put out this Shockwave gun toy in late 84, early 85, as part of the 1985 line. And uh, it's just neat to see that even as far back as the first episode, there were plans for more than what was just out there on the shelves at the time. And another thing, going into this, into this scene that's coming up. So the Autobots prepare to take off for space. And in the animation, there's a shot of the Ark, which is not named the Ark in uh, the TV series, but is in the treatment, uh, or might be named Auntie in the treatment, but it's uh, named the Ark eventually in the comics. Uh, so they go to take off for the from the Ark, and there's a cutaway of the thrusters of the Ark, and the camera is shaking, and there is actually blur 
from the heat of the engines and the thrust from the thrusters. And it's animation. There's no actual heat. So this is one of those advanced techniques that the animators used by blurring the shot and probably just taking it out of focus a little bit and, and racking it back and forth that gave this show a little bit extra depth in the animation. And that's the type of animation that um, doesn't happen all the time, but it is peppered throughout the series that has uh, kept it having a long-lasting impression on the people who grew up with it. So the Autobots fly into space. They run into a, they run into a um, meteor shower. And during the meteor shower, the Decepticons are following... They decide to board. And now this is one of those playable moments. This is one of those moments in the show that certainly struck a chord with me as a child playing with toys that I wanted to emulate. And it was that here are the Autobots. They're flying and they're safe and sound. And the Decepticon ship basically pulls up alongside. It puts out this chute. They board the ship. Everyone fights. Ship crashes into a volcano. Everyone's knocked out. Time passes. And then an eruption. Hey, real world uh, events, as I mentioned before. An eruption wakes up the computer. And the Sky Spy flies out and starts scanning for life and repairs Skywarp, of all people. Now Skywarp decides to get the rest of the Decepticons repaired. So the fun thing is that the Sky Spy malfunctioned in a way, not realizing that the life was organic and not mechanical, so it scanned vehicles instead of people. And that's basically where our story launches off from. And those those elements are very playable to a child because you can play with your your cars and your robots and have them crash and then have them knocked out and then have them wake up in this strange world. And I think those are are really important and we're going to get into more playable moments because this episode is littered with them as I said before so what else do we see we see some more future toys in this episode so eventually the Autobots wake up they find the Decepticons Decepticons realize it's them um, Laserbeak chases Cliffjumper Cliffjumper has an enormously uh, disproportionately large gun um, Laserbeak goes after Hounding Cliffjumper in this scene and uh splits off his cannons, which is a really odd uh, thing to see, is that one of his accessories just flying around on its own. Uh, but something we see shortly thereafter are some more future toy plants. So there is a crane with the Autobots, who is only here in this episode, and is referenced as Hauler. Hauler! Hauler so we believe they had planned to put the grapple uh, toy, the crane from Diaclone, out. And they did in 1985, but they kind of just ignored the fact that they introduced him early on. Uh, that figure would later actually make its way out as Road Hauler, or Load Hauler, depending on how you translate it. And that would be an e-hobby exclusive, also in the early 2000s. And we also see Reflector, who's a um, camera from the Microman line, who never got a retail release, uh, was a mail-order-only toy as of 1986, and required you to send in... Uh, money and robot points from the back of the packaging. So, some of the other important things here um, pertain to Starscream. Um, Starscream being set up as the foil for Megatron uh, in this episode and throughout his existence in the series. 
And it starts basically from when they leave uh, the volcano, where he starts shooting at the volcano. Starscream! I'm just saying goodbye! Save your energy! The Autobots have taken their last flight. Thanks for the ride, Farm. Too bad you can't go the rest of the way. Starscream's uh, hubris is what makes Optimus Prime fall into the path of the Sky Spies repair and gets the Autobots repaired. Uh, and another interesting thing with, with Starscream, and this happens in this episode and then a later one, um, and again, this is, I guess, something that wasn't terribly planned out or explained to the writers or explained to George Bloom, uh, the phrase, activate the null ray. Now, uh, Starscream has null rays on him. They're essentially his uh, guns that are mounted on his biceps. Uh, but Megatron commands him to activate the null ray. Starscream, activate the null ray now! And this happens a few times. Uh, and it seems to happen in the same sequence both times. It's activate the null ray and then, star, uh, then Soundwave creates energon cubes from his tape deck door um i think the last and most important thing so eventually the autobots fight uh the autobots and meet up they fight um prime is fighting megatron and gets distracted by laser beak and the septicons flee and go uh but not without causing a ton of damage to an oil platform where two humans named Spike and Sparkplug work. And that's where we're left off, where the humans are trapped in the uh, ocean. The Decepticons flee. There's a fire. Um, I feel like Megatron fleeing is, is certainly something we see very often, but Laserbeak beating Optimus Prime is also something we see very often, which I find uh, amusing, to say the least. But we're left with this cliffhanger of people being trapped, Autobots being trapped in the water, and... And we're left to wonder what's going to happen next episode. And that's that's another uh, big thing. So, moving on to episode two, also written by George Arthur Bloom. We start back with the flames and the fire at the oil platform. And uh, this is one of those big inconsistencies that we see uh, so very often is that the Autobots can fly, sort of, uh, so, we don't know if they can fly, but they fly a lot in these two, two, three episodes. And then they stop flying a lot. But they uh, certainly know how to make their way to places as well. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But uh, the Autobots save Spike and Sparkplug. They save the platform. Wheeljack uses something that's become a bit of a fan favorite over the years. Uh, a trope that we affectionately refer to as fire retardant foam, where he uh, slides his hand back, and that's what he is needed to uh, put out the fire by uh, having a, basically a fire extinguisher in his uh, wrist socket. And then eventually, the uh, Spike and Sparkplug join the Autobots back at their base, and Spike is writing in his diary. And in that diary, he reiterates something very important. The Autobots are a highly advanced form of robot. I don't really know if they're from the past or the future, but they can think 
and have real feelings. And that is so important there that Spike reiterates that the Autobots can think and they have feelings. This is something that they want to establish again and again and again. And I'm glad they do because that is what makes Transformers so interesting. They're not, again, they're not giant pieces of metal fighting each other. They're alien beings made of metal fighting each other. And that's such a, a interesting distinction from anything that has ever come before it. And then from there, Spike goes back into the uh, Autobot base and we get another great scene where Spike asks the Autobots why they transform. Hey, tell me more about Cybertron. What would you like to know? For one thing, why do you transform into cars and things? Simple. Disguise. Besides, it sure beats walking. Yeah, but how do you do it? Spike here wants to know how we transform, Hound. Easy, like this. Incredible. Now watch this. Who's he? Nobody. He doesn't really exist, Spike. It's a hologram. <laughs> what other tricks can you do? Try this one, Spike. Now you see me. Now you don't. Hey, where'd Mirage go? Over here! Disappearing. That's the best disguise of all. And it just reinforces that this show was created by the folks at Marvel uh, at its heart. Because the characters not only are aliens from another planet, they're not only robots, they're not only um, gifted with the ability to turn from one thing into another, but they also have some sort of technological superpowers depending on which character we're talking about. And that's such a very Marvel thing to do. So what you have here is not just a bunch of aliens fighting a civil war, but you have superhero teams, well, a superhero team, and a team of supervillains. And it just makes the story so much more larger than life. Even later in this episode, we'll see that Gears has infrared that helps him find Ravage, um, who's trying to infiltrate the Autobot base. And... When he is caught, he is caught by another trope uh, that uh, has become a fan favorite over the years, and that is the cartoon net. Because if you get caught in a net in a cartoon, you are not getting out of it. And that's just how nets in cartoons work. Um, and then later in this episode, Starscream prepares the Null Ray a second time. Starscream prepares the Null Ray! Then the, eventually, the Autobots and Decepticons fight each other at Sherman Dam, which I believe is a uh, stand-in for Hoover Dam, but is eventually used as Hoover Dam in the 2007 movie. And the fight at the dam is another one of those playable moments. It's one of those things that's very special to Transformers fans. It's the first time Optus and Megatron really go at it mano a mano and fight each other. And they pull out in another moment of convenience, the their hands switch out for melee weapons. And in this case, it's the energy axe for Optimus and the energy mace for Megatron. And they're fighting atop the dam. And this is just another one of those scenes that, that I think if you were a kid at that time, you played over and over and over again. Because it kind of emulated a bit of the lightsaber duels from Star Wars, but it had its own unique flavor to it. 
You destroy everything you touch, Megatron! Because everything I touch is food for my hunger! My hunger for power! No! I'm going to end your hunger once and for all! Almost fine! But almost doesn't get the job done! You can't stop me! You're old, Megatron. Yesterday's model, ready for the scrap heap. We'll see who's ready for the scrap heap. Junk! That's what you are. Junk! Silence! And that battle ends with Optimus losing and Megatron flying away, laughing. <laughs> and that laugh has become an intrinsic part of the character and Frank Welker's portrayal of the character even in later times and in later incarnations. And for more on that, we're going to defer to Frank Welker himself. In, in this particular scene and the laughter, uh, one thing about Transformers is we are transforming. So you remember the G1 voice was, I am Megatron, leader of the Decepticons. Well, in Prime, we changed that and transformed a little bit into a little bit more. I am Prime. Nevada, not Prime. I, but it, it was a, a little bit different texture, more uh, larger, more human. Uh, not so much of my mechanical stuff that I did before. But the laughter was basically still from G1, so it was... <laughs> and so it kind of transcended through, you know, even to this guy. And in that battle, the Autobots lose again. Um, Hound takes a beating from Rumble, gets trapped underwater. Spike goes to rescue him and nearly drowns, and that leads to another very weird and awkward scene. Uh, where Hound is giving Spike some sort of back massage as a form of uh, uh, rescue to get the water out of his lungs. And uh, it's certainly an awkward scene. Hunt it down if you can, because uh, it just looks weird. Uh, and from there, the Autobots need to travel to uh, stop Megatron to the Crystal Mines of Burma, where Sparkplug used to work. Now, let's, let's just put this in context. Okay, so Sparkplug and the Autobots are presumably somewhere in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Uh, we're going to say Portland, Oregon, just to uh, give us a frame of reference and to base it off of the comic treatment. Now, if they're in Portland, and Sparkplug used to work in the Crystal Mines of Burma, which is now Myanmar, that is roughly 7,192 miles from... Uh, where they are at that time and um, if you want that in kilometers that is 11,574 kilometers uh, thank you Google Maps so the Autobots drive there yes drive there uh, another thing that makes me laugh every time I see it but let's put all that aside let's put the logistics aside they get there um, and we get into another great playable moment in that uh, Bumblebee and Sparkplug go into the mine to set off a bomb given to them by Wheeljack. And uh, they get trapped in the mine. They get caught by the Decepticons. The bomb goes off as Prime and his roller companion uh, drive up to the side of the cliff face to uh, investigate. 
rollers inside. Prime is parked in vehicle mode outside of the uh, entrance to the cave. Bomb goes off. Prime rolls horizontally down the hill as a truck. Roller, Bumblebee, Spark Plug all trapped inside. And that is your cliffhanger. And that gets us to episode three. And the start of the episode starts in a playable moment because that that scene of Optimus rolling down the hill is another one that's very easily to put, very easy to do uh, as a kid with your toys if you have uh, something to stand in for Optimus and get trapped at that door. Then starts the recovery effort, another playable moment: the Autobots digging out Bumblebee and Roller and Sparkplug, and then Optimus so damaged that he has struggled trans he has to struggle transforming into robot mode and uh, this isn't even one you can play with your you could play just play as your toys um, with the way Optimus transforms as a kid it's very easy to tuck your arms into your side and pretend to not be able to stand up and so again the show gives uh, these f- fun little things they're very dramatic and very playable and very um, possible to reenact as a kid so from there, we get a scene with Ironhide and Blue Streak where they chase the Decepticons and eventually uh, get shot down. Again, the Autobots are flying uh, with no explanation as to why. And then eventually Ironhide gets carted off by Ratchet uh, for repairs. The Autobots decide to pull a ruse on the Decepticons by speaking about their plans openly in front of Ravage, who has been captured, and then conveniently making it possible for him to escape. Now, something interesting that we see here is that, so they set up the plan to be one of Hound's holograms. The Autobots set up their trap and then attack. You get Windcharger in a lab coat, which is another fan favorite uh, weirdness uh, in the episode. And the Autobots set up their attack, and the Decepticons see through their plan. So when the Autobots attack the Decepticons, they're busting up a bunch of junk. And Megatron wins again. And that's something that's very interesting to see throughout this first three-parter, is that the Autobots haven't really won anything. They lost on the Ark. They lost on the oil platform. They lost at the uh, mines of Burma. They lost at the dam. And uh, now again, with their, they lost with Ironhide chasing uh, down the Decepticon jets. And they've lost again here with their fuel ruse. So the Autobots, for being the good guys, have not won. And again, that makes this show and this particular set of episodes very interesting in that it's very mature that the Autobots keep fighting in the face of adversity and so we brings us to another um set of playable moments as we bring this series of episodes this three-parter to a climax at the end of this one and that is the autobots uh call for volunteers so let's just uh let's just give it a listen we have come to a moment of truth the decepticons are in position to return to cybertron We have no choice but to attack them directly. But this battle will be most dangerous. So I ask for volunteers. Jazz? Volunteers, step forward. Autobots, transform. 
to the climax of the episode of the Autobots taking the battle to the Decepticons who are building their new ship. And we get another playable moment in Soundwave ejecting all of his tapes. Bongo, laser beak, ravage, prepare for battle, operation, warfare, eject, eject, eject. And in the climax battle, we get to see something we have never seen in the show and we'll never see again after this and that is Optimus Prime's combat deck now the toy itself has a trailer that transforms and opens up and has uh, a gun in it and a repair bay and we see that and it also leads to another uh, fan creation something we find a lot of fun that's called the uh, the finger of doom and the finger of doom is that when Optimus transforms and the combat deck transforms uh, he, t- he commands it to fire and he points his finger and then they cut to uh, Megatron pointing his uh, fusion cannon uh, at Optimus and firing himself and we cut back to Optimus and combat deck blows up and but a laser shoots out between uh, Optimus and combat deck which then blows off Megatron's fusion cannon so thus we have the finger of doom and Decepticons now get away in this episode they get into their spaceship when they fly off and prime is angry and this is another neat thing that we see uh in the show and another kind of playable moment but we never really got this piece as part of a toy um prime wanting sideswipes rocket pack his jetpack sideswipe give me your rocket pack my rocket pack now uh yeah right Prime takes the rocket pack, flies up, and gets shot down. And he's angry after he falls and crashes, too. Don't move, Prime! We'll take care of you! Uh, I'm fine. I'm all right. Let Ratchet check you out. I said I'm fine! He's angry that they lost, and that's, uh... One more interesting thing in this tale is that as the hero, Optimus, is left angry and frustrated, and he's not the hero of the day. The... Decepticons ultimately find defeat from two people. One, of course, is Starscream, who takes the moment to try to usurp Megatron's uh, command as they're flying off. And that provides enough of a distraction for Mirage, who is hidden on the uh, Decepticon shuttle, to uh, fire a few shots, causing the ship to crash into the water, into the ocean, I presume and escape and so that wraps up the three-parter and what's interesting there is that the Autobots only really had one solid victory in those three parts and we got introduced to the war and we got left with a cliffhanger that will lead us right into the next episode so moving into episode four I think we're going to move a little bit quicker through some of the plots and some of the uh, story elements because so much was set up in those first three episodes. But a couple of technical things worth noting about episode four, which is called Transport to Oblivion. It's the first episode after the miniseries, and it first aired on October 6th, 
1984, which was a Saturday morning, uh, which I believe might have been the first time the show was on on a Saturday morning. And it was over two weeks after uh, the previous three episodes had aired. And that's important because the previous episode had been uh, originally aired on a Wednesday. And uh, two and a half weeks later, pre-DVR, pre-streaming video, at best, it was recorded on a VCR if you saw it or if you were and recorded it. So it had a bit of a recap off the top. And again, the recap hammers home very important points via Vic Carolla. Four million years ago, creatures from the planet Cybertron crash-landed on Earth. Mechanical creatures of great technical sophistication, Autobots. So the writers of this episode um, were a team of Bryce Malick and Dick Robbins. And this is the first of four episodes by this team. And they were also the story editors for the entire first season of the show. They were veteran cartoon writers. Uh, and they had written a lot of shows that featured this particular voice cast, uh, including Scooby-Doo. Now, uh, I haven't been able to find much on Dick Robbins, but Bryce Malick is now a psychotherapist in the Los Angeles area. So if you need a psychotherapist, look him up, and then maybe you can find out some information about the show as well. And uh, early in this episode, uh, we're introduced back to the Autobots at their base. Uh, they have not left uh, for Cybertron. And uh, they find out that uh, the Decepticons are still around and still kicking around Earth. And Optimus needs to investigate. And he does so with another roll call. Ironhide, Ratchet, Prowl, Cliffjumper, Gears. Mm, over half our force is out on patrol. Uh, Bumblebee reporting for duty. You're late again. Autobots? Transform! Roll out for the power station! And here, at the end of the roll call, we realize that uh, Bumblebee is now going to be the focus uh, as the Kid Appeal character. And Bumblebee is very important in this episode as, uh, without getting into too much detail about the episode, the Decepticons create something called the Space Bridge, which is something we will see in the cartoon and the comics as a way for the characters to get to and from Cybertron without having to uh, get on a spaceship. So it's basically a giant teleportation device. And uh, Bumblebee and Spike get captured by the Decepticons. They become guinea pigs in this Space Bridge project. We see Shockwave again, uh, further uh, cementing him into the early lore of the show. And... Eventually, the Autobots win out. The space bridge is not destroyed, but Megatron is sent packing and is stranded on Cybertron. And, uh, of course, in this episode, we do have a very weird moment in Jazz taking a uh, baseball bat to a laser. Not an actual baseball bat, but he swings something uh, in the style of a baseball bat to knock a laser into another direction. And Laserbeak is grounded by a cartoon net and you know what we said about cartoon nets you cannot get out of them no matter how hard you try you go home you try it and see if you can get out of a cartoon net and that will bring us to the final episode we will cover in this podcast episode and that is called roll for it and roll for it is the fifth episode of the show uh it was written by doug or douglas booth depending on uh, what episode you're on he goes by both uh, he's one of the most prolific writers of the 
Generation 1 cartoon written, writing more than 10 episodes and was a uh, animation writer in Hollywood for years. Uh, did a lot of work on the Smurfs, um, worked on some of the Hasbro properties. He was a Harvard graduate and now works in real estate in New York City. And this episode picks up right where the previous one left off. So Megatron starts stranded on Cybertron and Starscream is leading the Decepticons. And this is continuity. And continuity is not something you see in 80s cartoon shows. Um, there's very little continuity in, say, even some of the shows that were contemporary to Transformers, such as uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Um, very few things carried over episode to episode. Very things were remembered from episode to episode. And uh, in five episodes, we have a very um, poignant continuity in that there things happen and episodes end and the next one picks up right where it left off and that's not going to stay consistent throughout the series but it's certainly a nice thing to see setting the tone for the series and as the series became more popular it was harder and harder for the production team and the animation staff to keep up and keep a continuity going from episode to episode but in the early stages it certainly seemed like the plan in this episode, we also get a new human character for the Autobots to interact with, and that is Chip Chase, the wheelchair-bound uh, computer genius who uh, is actually finally getting a toy in Japan in the next uh, few months uh, as part of the Masterpiece Sunstreaker toy. Chip is a central focus in this episode as he uh, has a formula for rocket fuel and uh, he has it memorized in his head and destroys the uh, computer copies. And in a really bizarre moment in the episode, and these things happen throughout, is, holy crap, Chip tears up a floppy disk with his bare hands, which uh, I don't think is very possible. Um, he also dials into uh, Prowl and controls him when his computer goes down, his battle computer goes down. And uh, that is kind of a foreshadowing of things to come in the toy line. Uh, humans and organic creatures interacting more with the robot characters um, as part of a way to control them and work with them. Uh, it's also an interesting little uh, life imitating art, imitating life in that um, while being able to connect computers via phone line uh, was not terribly commonplace but f fairly understood in the mid-80s, um, now it's it's part of our way of life and it seems a little goofy and silly the way it was portrayed here but this was like very super futuristic in 1984 um, we also get a, a quick look at uh, Soundwave's mind reading abilities as he tries to take the rocket fuel um, formula from Chip and the Autobots again lose a battle in this episode and get pretty beat up and there's a scene where they transform where they're damaged which is actually a really neat scene because like Ironhide has a broken windshield and the Autobots are kind of all uh, dilapidated as they head back for repairs at the base uh, eventually there's another battle uh, and we get to meet uh, Sideswipe and Sunstreaker again and they perform what's called Jet Judo or as they jokingly refer to it in an episode in this episode and eventually in the battle uh, Braun, hiding in a ravine, throws Optimus Prime, who's driving at full speed in truck mode, uh, into Megatron. So Braun throws a truck, which is kind of a bizarre scene, but uh, also incredibly amusing, at least to me. And finally, the episode is wrapped up by 
Skywarp um, essentially getting hacked by Teletran 1, Chip Chase, and Spike, who plant a uh, control device on his leg, which then allows Teletran to take over Skywarp remotely and control, move his functions and keep him from firing Megatron at the Autobots, uh, who, while Megatron is filled with unstable rocket fuel formula. Um, and that wraps up the episode, the Autobots win, the Decepticons escape, and that becomes kind of the dance we're going to see throughout the series. And while I haven't touched on every detail of each and every episode, uh, a couple guys who do are Kevin and Adam from the Cybertronological podcast, and they were kind enough to contribute a little bit to this episode by just giving you an idea of what they do and touching on the one thing they call the insane moments of each show. So without further ado, I'm going to toss it to them. Hello, I'm Kevin. And I'm Adam. And we host a podcast called Transformers Cybertronological. What we're doing is we're going back and rewatching every single episode of the original Transformers cartoon in chronological order. We also do um, an insane moment for every single episode apiece. And we pick out our favorite and our least favorite line of dialogue as well. So for us, we had to dive back into our oldest, oldest archives, digging back through episodes one through five. And here are a few things that we found that were pretty great. So one of the things I think that sticks out the first to me is the episode where Starscream had the slingshot. Episode two, More Than Meets the Eye Part 2. Yeah, he had a slingshot that shot, I guess, lasers? <laughs> Amazing. Then the very next episode in episode three, there were Autobots in lab coats. I don't remember what they were doing, but Bumblebee and a couple of others are wearing lab coats. And then this is the episode where Optimus Prime steals someone's jetpack to blast off into wherever he goes. Yeah, he just flies him the I think he was going to sacrifice himself, but he ends up, of course, living for now. An amazing episode. Episode four was a big one for us because it introduced a running gag concerning Megatron that you came up with. Oh, oh, I think you're talking about mysterious Megatron? Yeah, every so often Megatron would just like suddenly have a new thing come out of him or a new ability that fit the plot. And this time it was, what was it again? I believe it was the actual like tentacle or eye that came out of his chest. Ah, yes, that's right. The weird chest snake thing. So then finally we get to episode five where, I mean, we watched a few episodes, we were used to the animation, and then this one threw us a curveball and gave us some crazy stuff. This was the episode where we went from sometimes doing GIFs and sometimes doing still images to, like, we're going to have to do GIFs for both of our insane moments. And it was Soundwave comes out of this building running, and he's running more like a Looney Tune than a Transformer. It's a little hard to describe, but it's very goofy and, and a lot of fun. We also have a Transformer riding a jet in this episode, so... Yeah, and if you want to check out some of these images or GIFs, you can go to CybertronOlogical.com, and uh, we've got them all up there from every single episode. And thanks for having us on to talk about the first five episodes of this crazy, crazy show. And so I hope you enjoyed this episode of this crazy, crazy show. And I have a couple of things for you before I head on out. I want you guys to write in and let me know your playable moments from these five episodes or the next five episodes, or any episode, really. I want to read them on the show. I want to know which scenes had a profound impact on you uh, growing up. Uh, so go back, find your favorite episode, uh, and let me know what your playable moments are. What what scenes did you reenact? And, of course, uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to Transformers University. Uh, I hope you go and check out our website tfu.info i hope you've decided to like our youtube channel and subscribe to this on whatever 
uh, fine podcast catcher you're using, if it's a Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, we're even available on YouTube. Uh, so please go to our YouTube channel, subscribe, leave a comment, uh, help us out uh, any way you can, uh, just by just by telling your friends, telling people you know, and uh, certainly leaving reviews is a big help. So help us get noticed on uh, on the iTunes Store and on Google Play by just leaving a quick review or a quick uh, four star, five star um, click. Or if you don't think we're four star, five star, then you know what? Leave a bad review. Uh, that's fine with me too. Uh, I want to know what you're not liking about the show too. So certainly you can do that, or you can hit me up on the email at info at tfu.info. Lastly, uh, if you're looking for a way to help the show, there's several, several ways. The easiest way is to go to tfu.info slash Amazon. It'll take you to Amazon, and anything you buy, Amazon kicks back a few pennies to me and this site so that we can help fund the show. Uh, you shop Amazon as you normally would. Nothing costs any more. Um, if I could find a way to make it cost less for you, I will let you know, but I don't think it does. Uh, that's first foremost the primary way to help the show. Second way to help the show is to just uh, tell people about it. Third way to help the show and to help TFU.info, the world's longest running transforming toy archive, is to head on over to TFU.info slash help. In there, you'll find a list of all the uh, figures up through 2016, I believe, that are now missing from the toy archive. So if you have one of those toys and you have a digital camera, which I know you do, because you probably have it on your phone that you're listening to this podcast on right now. Uh, get a couple pieces of white paper, get a light, and shoot some photos for us. Uh, it's very easy. The instructions are all there. If something doesn't make sense to you, drop me a line at info, dot, info at tfu.info, and I'll be happy to uh, follow up with you and help you along the way. So any contributions to the site, uh, big help, and I'll give you a big shout-out here on the show, uh, as well as credit on our credits page. And that will wrap up Transformers University for this episode. I am your host, Anthony Brucalli. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at TFU underscore info and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TFUINFO. In the next episode, I think we're going to dive into the comics. Uh, but until then, hope you've enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoyed uh, Transformers University and we'll see you.